0: Thanks for listening. Come back often and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's start with our uh, scripture memory passage review. We're in uh, Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. So if you know Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. I'm going to go first. You're going to go first? I uh, Okay. All right. There's some tricky uh, phrases in here that are, I still feel a little bit of an echo. There you go. Anybody else? Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. All right. Miss Darley, you're it today? Speaking of Whoop. Sure. Hang on. No, no. No, no. <laughs> There we go. I did say go, yes, but couldn't give you opportunity to cheat, and I always have to distract you a little bit, so. Speaking the truth in love, see, you just really cool. Speaking the truth in love, we will all grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. That is, yeah, absolutely. That's verse 15. Excellent. You started with speaking the truth in love, and I was like, "That's not verse 14." I'm sorry, that's just not it. Okay, great. Thank you, Ms. Darla. I appreciate that. All right. So uh, today is uh, week three of systematic theology: of the doctrine of the church. Exciting stuff, riveting stuff. And I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a heads up. I was talking to Justin about this lesson before we started, and. Uh, when you, when you teach what the Bible says about a very large topic like the church, there are big buckets that things can fall into that fit very neatly. And then there are things that you've got to cover because if you skipped them, it just would seem very deficient. But they don't necessarily fit together very well. So today we're going to look at four somewhat disconnected ideas. Um, spiritual warfare, we're going to look at uh, the keys of the kingdom, the power of the church and the power of the state, and then church discipline. And if you, if you think about those four concepts, you need to go, well, they don't seem very connected. Well, they're not very connected. So Grudem put a, a label on top of them that talks about the power and the authority of the church. So that's the, the title of today's lesson is The Power of the Church. And it's basically, what is the church authorized to do in what spheres, in what spaces, uh, those types of things. So um, I was trying to think of an analogy on this, and it, it almost to me feels like a laptop. So you guys are familiar with laptops, right? you got to plug a laptop in and it gets charged up and then you run programs on the laptop. But the programs that are on the laptop don't really have to interconnect or relate to each other. They're just what the laptop does. It's how it functions. But the power comes from somewhere else. So literally, that's as close as I can get to making all this stuff connect. And that was a stretch. So let's jump right in. So here's your definition for the power of the church. Three blanks here because this is three of the four big areas that we're going to look at. So the power of the church is its God-given authority to carry on spiritual warfare its your first blank spiritual warfare proclaim the what do you think the next blank is the gospel yes proclaim the gospel and exercise church yes. discipline yes exercise church discipline <clears throat> so God gives authority in these uh, spaces and so we'll, we'll look at each one of these in order so let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians 10 3 and 4 and this is probably the one that is the, I don't know, maybe not, but it seems to me to be extremely straightforward and this is kind of a, a duh statement almost, but you got to talk about this lest you leave things out that are really, really important, right? Because the reality is there is a raging war between God and his enemies and has been so for a very long time. So we need to recognize that and acknowledge it. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, who's got that? Got it. Josh? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Yeah. So the weapons of our warfare are what? Swords and guns and knives and... Right? Is that what it says? No. No. It's pretty much not that, right? Yeah. So everything you learned about the Crusades was basically like how not to implement... Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. right? So read those two verses again for me. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The yeah, weapon- so we're here, but we're not warring here. There is a different enemy. And there's several different verses that talk about this. Um, so just, just want to touch on that uh, and kind of tap that and say, yes, we've, we've looked at it. I have a question in my notes. And the question is, do we have the same power that those in the New Testament had access to? So if you look through uh, Acts and Corinthians and whatnot, you see pretty substantial actions that you look at and you go, wow, that's that's some pretty big-time stuff there. Uh, And I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. I know I didn't highlight that, but I think it's worth looking at. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. So we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, purity in the church. And I gave you an example of the cups of water. Remember the cups of water with the dirt in them and the one with the poison in them? And um, I talked about some things that were in, we so were going on in some of these churches that were just spectacularly awful. I mean, just really, really heinously bad sin to the point where... They, they, these things are illegal. Like in our modern society today, these things are illegal. So let's look at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, I'll, I'll read these for you real quick. So it says, it's actually reported, this is Paul writing to the Corinth, that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. So the Gentiles don't even give this a name, right? Uh, that a man has his father's wife, which is just, that's just, just don't do that, right? Verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned uh, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged. As though I were present, uh, him who has done so this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying, I have already decided that this is wrong and I am aligned with God in this. And even though I am not physically with you, I am giving you the authority to deal with this. So just as... From a distance, Paul was okay with this church taking action on that. Grudem would say that implies to us that from a distance, even though we are distance from the actual writings of the New Testament, we have the same authority as the church of Jesus Christ that these churches in first century A.D. had. So that it's not a, well, that was something special that God gave them to deal with issues and to fight spiritual warfare and to fight and combat untruth. That that is for us as well today. So I just want to make sure that is present because sometimes we get the feeling that, well, that was something special for them and that doesn't really apply to us. Well, there are some things like that, but there are also some things that say, we have this power, we have this uh, authority, we have the same power that Paul had access to, which is good. All right, so point B, uh, the keys of the kingdom. So flip over to Matthew 16, 19. Boy, I just did not do a good job highlighting verses this morning, did I? Sorry. I got you close with Matthew 18, 17, 18, but one page back from that. So Matthew 16, 19, and we'll give you your blanks here. So I carry around keys in my pocket, um, and I hate how many that I have, but I use all these, so I feel like I ought to carry them around if I use them, right? So what does a key do? Let's talk about keys real quick. We'll get real tactical. There's non-spiritual answers and like what does a key, I have a key in my, oh, that's a perfect one. It locks and unlocks doors, right? So anybody know what this key is? Some of you have used this key. Like this, what's that? Not the church key. That's my truck key, yes. That's exactly right. Now, for those of you that ever want to borrow my truck, um, uh, three things that I tell everybody. Uh, One, don't lock the doors. I don't have the key to the doors. Okay? This key does not work to the door. Do not lock the doors. Um, yes, I can break into it very easily because it's a 77 Ford, right? It's not built for security. This is built for carrying heavy things, right? Uh, and looking awesome going down the road, but that's, that's a secondary purpose. Uh, two is when you park it, make sure it's all the way up in park because sometimes it likes to hang out in reverse and when you start it and give it some gas, you'll lunge backward about 10 feet. Not cool, all right? Keith Chrisman had a near-death experience with this one time, so just ask him about that. It's not good. Uh, and three, uh, don't break the glass. All right. I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to find the glass for that truck. So don't break the glass. Other than that, I don't care what you do with it. Right. But this is my truck key, and it will give you access to be able to move that truck. <laughs> Some of you know my backstory. Know that that was really funny for me, but that's okay. It it also gives you. Uh, the ability to move from one place to another. So it will start the vehicle, right? And it will give you the ability to go from one place to another. So here's your definition you your blank. <clears throat> Matthew, oh, we've got to read Matthew 16, 19 first. Sorry. Who's got, you got Matthew 16, 19, Shelby? Excellent. You're sitting on Go. I appreciate it. Not like Pokemon Go, but like you're sitting on Go. So That's my only Pokemon joke today. It won't be, but that's okay. I don't have that on my phone. Awesome. I need somebody who, Sorry. I need somebody who, does, who has Pokemon Go and on their phone? Great. I need you to tell me if we have one here at this campus. We do? We do? Excellent. Where is it? Out by the sign. Out by the sign. Excellent. All right. Ooh, Perfect. No, this is great because there are all sorts of churches that are taking advantage of this and they're staffing those, those places while church goes on because people are just coming up and like people are actively coming to the church to go hunt for imaginary things. I want to give them something real. So, just an idea. A Pokemon gym. Like, oh, uh, G-Y-M. Oh, all right, all right. I was like, there's one named me? That's cool. Awesome. All right, sorry. I just, that was like awful rabbit trail, but. Matthew sixteen nineteen. Here we go. Here we go. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of So, who's speaking here? Jesus is speaking. Who's he speaking to? If you remember back to our series on uh, the Apostles. There's one of them whose symbol is keys. Peter, yes. He's telling Peter what? I will give you... The keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed. Loosed, (laughs) yep. So like binding is to tying up and loosing is to unbinding basically. So it's a... We don't use the word loose very often, but in that sense we don't. Um, All right, so keys of the kingdom. So the question is... What are the keys to the kingdom, right? And and if you Google what are the keys to the kingdom, uh, Google will give you about forty billion results, right? I mean, this is just there's there's a lot, a lot, a lot of views on this. But here's your blanks for the um, what a key is, and I like the way that Grudem approaches this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, a key always implies authority to open a door and give entrance to a place or realm. <clears throat> so so think about. What does opening a door do? Well, opening a door physically unlocks access to a place. But you can unlock a door and not walk through the door, right? Does that do much for you? Not unless you're trying to let somebody else in, right? But if you're trying to let somebody else in, that's fine. All right, so um, the, the key, here's I'm going to read you a quote from Grudem here. The keys of the kingdom of heaven represent at least, and he's going to go on to add some more to this in a minute, the authority to preach the gospel of Christ. If you look at Matthew 16, 16. show you where that's at. <clears throat> at least the authority to preach the gospel of Christ and open the door of the kingdom of heaven and allow people to enter. Now, Gruden would say that Peter did this first in Acts chapter 2. right? So what does he do in Acts chapter 2? He... Wake up for me, guys. Come on. He preaches where? At Pentecost, right? And what happens? Really good things happen, yes? 3,000 people get saved. This is really, really good. He opens the door and people walk through. Keys to the kingdom. He's saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Now, some denominations approach this as, I am giving you authority over all of the church, and you then give those to one person and they give those to one person and they give those to one person and the name of that one person is? The Pope. The Pope. yes. Um, and we would look at this and we would say, no. Okay? Because it feels like if you're going to have responsibility for the authority of the entire church that there would be a whole lot of input and direction and governance and oversight to describe what exactly that looks like and how you transition that and all the details associated with it. So uh, all sorts of stuff that is, is silent in the Bible that would need to be there if you're going to interpret it that particular way. All right, so if the keys of the kingdom are in fact partially uh, opening the door, and I've got a picture here. See the keys of the kingdom? Now, I want you to focus on one word up here, and it's the word keys. What are you going to tell me about this word? Plural. What's that? Plural. It's plural. Yes, it is. Very good. And I appreciate you reading it very well, Shelby, when you read that, because you you actually emphasized the S, which I didn't I don't know if you knew you were doing that or not, because it was really good. Uh, so, keys. So, if you have more than one key, what does that imply? More than one door. right? More than one thing that's locked. So, Grudem talks about how the keys to the kingdom of heaven, uh, and let's look at Matthew 18, 17 and 18 here. So, we've got... Matthew 18 in this section is talking about church discipline. And Grudem's going to talk about, and we're going to go into a lot more detail on this in here in a little bit. Grudem's going to talk about how there's a key to open the door to salvation, but once you get inside, there's some governance over what is going on inside. Would you agree? That inside the church, that God has set up some level of governance structure so that things are to operate as they should, right? Okay. Does everybody have the same governance authority inside the church? No. And that's good, right? Because can you imagine if we all walked around with the exact same level? I mean, we are described over and over and over and over again in the Bible as sheep, right? A whole bunch of sheep that all think they're in charge is really bad. I'm channeling my inner Dave Barber right there, all right? Sorry, Julie's not here to stop me from this, so it's just the way that's going to work today. All right, so I'm going to read you something from Grudem here. So the keys to the kingdom of heaven uh, both admit people to the kingdom through preaching of the gospel and the authority to exercise church discipline for those who do enter. So the idea being that if you think about uh, the kingdom of heaven as being a physical building, there's a key needed to get in and then keys needed to access and authorize parts inside because everything is not for everybody. All right, so that's Grudem's interpretation of keys, which is plural. And most of the time when I hear keys to the kingdom explained, everybody only talks about one key. I'm like, I've always thought, well, what are the other keys for? It's like there's more than one key here. This is, feels like something's going on. All right, so let's look at Matthew 18, 17, uh, and 18. I'm going to show you a couple things here. So it says, and if he refuses to, so this, let's back up, uh, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother, which is great. If he will not hear you, take with you one or two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. I assuredly say to you, what's the next word in your Bibles? Whatever. Did it say Whoever. No, it says whatever, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be loosed, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this word "whatever" is neuter in the Greek. You're like Jim. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Greek. Uh, what's the? Somebody help me. An English person. There's masculine. There's feminine. There's neuter. The phrase for that is the tense gender. Gender. Thank you very much. I think I could remember that word. Um, <clears throat> neuter in Greek, and it seems to indicate that Jesus is speaking not specifically to persons, because if he was speaking to persons, he would say what? Good. Whoever or whomever, right? Whichever one of those words is right. Stacy Bandy's not here anymore, so I won't know which one is correct. So... Uh, so whoever, this is not whoever, this is a whatever. So this is more generally to situations and relationships that come up in the church. Uh, this is not necessarily to individual people. So give me, let me give you an example. Um, so there is some level of authority that God gives to the church to define and say certain things are not good. Right? So let me give you an example. Do our pastors care what you do for a living? You sure? (laughs) To an an extent, right? I'll tell you a story real quick. So when uh, Mark Driscoll had just started uh, his church out in Seattle, this is many, many years ago, they noticed that at one of their campuses they were getting like dozens and dozens and dozens of $1 bills in rolls, and they were like, this is a lot of $1 bills. Like, what's going on here? So they started poking around and poking around, and they finally found, like, the individual woman who was giving all these $1 bills. And does anybody want to guess what her occupation was that they then needed to have a conversation with her about, that Christians don't do that. Right? And her response was, but I'm tithing on it. <laughs> and... and I love the heartbeat that she wants to, but, right? So does your church staff care what you do? Yeah, kind of, right? Because there's some things that we would say, no, that is not healthy. That is not good. That is not right for believers to participate in. Does this make sense? You with me? All right, so there's some things where situations, we would say, nope, we're going to, Avoid this. So that's an extreme example of this. So let me, let me keep going here for just a second. Um, I'm going to talk about tenses real quick. All right. So you see this phrase, whatever you bind on earth. Uh, so you see this phrase, verse uh, 18. Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This is the paraphrastic. Whoops. Did I disappear? Am I good? You guys still hear me? Okay. This is the paraphrastic future tense. You may know what the paraphrastic future tense means. I got to admit, I've been studying the Bible a long time. Don't ever remember running up on this one. Okay? Here's what it means. It's best translated, whatever you shall bind on on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus is teaching that discipline will have heavenly sanction. That this is the idea that that when when a church rightly exercises church discipline here, it is sanctioned in heaven and has approval from heaven. So it is a if you do it here, it will be good there. If you loose it here, it will be loosed there. So there is some connection and this gives the church Comfort that there is alignment with heaven. Because church discipline is not to be done lightly. We're going to talk about it here in just a couple minutes. But this is not something that we just haphazardly, flippantly go and do. We think through this. We pray through this. This is serious stuff. Does this make sense? We good? All right. We're going to shift gears one more time. Actually, we're going to shift gears two more times. So here's your next blank. Uh, Christians should submit to this discipline and not run from it. So why would we say that? Why would we say that? There you go, right? If heaven agrees with what is being done on earth, it feels like that should get our attention. Does this make sense? You with me? You guys are... Yes? This is yes. This is no. Yes. Excellent. Good. All right. So let's keep going. Uh, big disconnected point number three: uh, the power of the church and the power of the state. So uh, let's go to John eighteen thirty six and 2 Corinthians ten four. So one of the craziest scenes in the movie, uh, while you're turning there, uh, the Passion of the Christ. Uh, I think it was the opening scene: Jesus in the garden. Right, that was the opening scene. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, the uh, the guards come in. Peter draws his sword, whacks off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And what do you hear? Y'all remember hearing anything then? Remember the movie? There was this high-pitched ringing, and you get the perspective from Malchus, which I I think is what would actually happen if you had your ear removed. You know, your ear is constructed so that sound comes in and is interpreted properly. And if you remove that, you're, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but all the stuff inside your ear doesn't know how to interpret the sound that's coming in, and it's just going to be a squealing, high-pitched scream. And that's all you hear. And, And at first, I thought, like, did the sound just go crazy? I mean, what's going on here? This is this, this is kind of a serious movie. Is Jesus being arrested? You know, come on, let's get this right. And then I realize Malchus is sitting there, and just you know, his ear's on the ground. I'm like, what in the world? And what does Jesus tell Peter in the Bible? This is not in the Bible in this text right here. But what does Jesus tell Peter to do with that sword? Put it away. That's not what this is about, right? You you have you have misinterpreted what. I want you to do with that. All right? So let's look at this verse. This first word here. John 18 36. What does it say? <coughs> my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So that should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. You Anybody have a different word? Does anybody have a different word? You you know how rare that is? You know what that means? Word means fight. (laughs) It's really, really well translated fight. We are not called to fight, to punish people into the kingdom. That is not how this kingdom grows. Every other kingdom in the history of the world grows through war or through acquisition or through threat of war, not God's kingdom. God's kingdom grows a different way. Because if we were to grow by war, do you think those at the edge of the sword would be true, faithful believers? Not no, absolutely not. That is not the way this is supposed to work. All right, 2 Corinthians 10.4. I actually read this one earlier today. So he have got 2 Corinthians 10.4. Well, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But have power to destroy strongholds. Absolutely. So the weapons are not of flesh, right? So flip over to Romans 13 for just a second. Romans 13. The first seven verses of Romans 13, they outline what the government's responsibility is in relation to evil. So, so we have a book that tells us what is true and what is evil. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bible tells us this is good and this is evil but it is not our responsibility as the kingdom of God to punish good and evil, which is kind of odd, right? Because we're given the definition, we're given examples, we're given direction, but we're not given the authority to go and to punish good and evil. Who is given the authority to punish? Well, you wouldn't punish good. Who is given the authority to punish evil? Thank you. Yes, the government is given the authority to punish evil. So let me show you what this looks like. Um, The power that the church has is distinct from the power that the state... Distinct, some math term is different. is, Is different than the power that the state has. And when the state functions as they should and the church functions as they should, this combines to form God's ideal. Now, just as the pure glass of water the last couple of weeks, this never happens perfectly. Right? Have we ever had a perfect church? Now, have we ever had a perfect state? No, right? And just as much as we snicker and laugh at the perfect state, we ought to snicker and laugh at the perfect church because we are the components that screw this up. Like, hi, my name's Jim, I ruin the church. I keep it from being perfectly pure. Honestly, right? And I also keep the state from being perfectly right because I am a member of the state. So this is the ideal. When we really get into fuzzy places is when the church wants to do the state's job and when the state wants to do the church's job. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. And the Bible is very clear that every time it talks about the state, it talks about one set of things. Every time it talks about the church, it talks about a completely non-overlapping other set of things. These two things never overlap in the Scripture, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament... These concepts, the people of God and the nation of God, were very, very intertwined. But in this New Testament covenant age that we are in right now, these two things are distinct. When Jesus comes back and rules and reigns, like, scrap this, it'll just be this. It'll be great. And the reason this doesn't work is that God is not the head of it right now. Does this make sense? Okay, great. The distinctions between the power of the church and the power of the state. And there's a couple other verses there uh, that talk about some of these distinctions, and I'm not going to go into those today. All right, so church discipline. D, <clears throat> the purpose of church discipline, right? So the purpose of church discipline is what? To be angry and hateful. <laughs> no, those are not, do not write that down. The purpose of church discipline is restoration and reconciliation. Of the believer who is going astray. So we've already read Matthew eighteen fifteen through seventeen. That first verse, you know, you go, you talk to your brother, and if he if he like if he changes, this is good. We have won our brother, and there's almost a like yes, this is really really good because there's a restoration and a reconciliation that takes place here, which is great, um, and I. I have have managed a lot of people in my life in, uh, in a professional environment. And what I tell every single one of my employees, I've been this for several years now, is that I love small problems. I want you to bring me gobs and gobs and gobs of small problems because I want to deal with stuff when it's small, not when it has festered and grown and grown and grown and oh, now we have to amputate a limb. Right? I don't want to deal with amputation. I want to deal with, man, my fingernail hurts a little bit. Great. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with that when it's really, really small, when it's contained so that it doesn't develop and develop and develop and develop. And this first step of church discipline, which is just having a conversation with somebody, is the one that I think is ignored so often. Because if we would take the initiative and do this early and quickly and lovingly and gently... We stem off gobs and gobs and gobs of stuff. You, tell, you look back in your life and you tell me which conversation is easier to have? A conversation over something little that you dealt with immediately or a conversation that you let go and you waited for a few months until it really looks ugly and now you've gotten to the point where you have to, like, you have to do something at this point. Right? So we, we disengage early and then it gets messy late. And I want to encourage us to engage early. Engage early. So, uh, A is restoration and reconciliation. B is to keep sin from spreading to others. So Hebrews 12, 15. Who's got Hebrews 12, 15? Now y'all are all nervous. I'm not going to go in order. So, sorry. Let's do 14 and 15. Sorry. Darla, you got it? 14 and 15? Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile men. No bitter what? Roots. No bitter root. Are there different sizes of roots? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Justin and Carrie came over to our house yesterday, and we uh, planted some uh, flowers in the barren wilderness that was our uh, immediately in front of our house. So uh, it doesn't look like nobody lives there anymore. It looks like somebody actually cares about the building. So thank you for that, guys. Uh, And what we found is that we had a guy come over and he tilled up that ground beforehand so that we could have an easy job when we worked. And we picked out gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs of roots, of things that used to grow there. And the vast majority of them were substantially smaller than my uh, little pinky finger. But there were some that were, whoo, like, okay, this... I'm glad we got this up because this would have been a problem. This would have been very difficult to plant something healthy with this roots, these old dead roots still here. And what I see oftentimes when we ignore small conversations, when we ignore those thready, strandy roots, you know, that you can just pull up and toss away, it's no big deal, is that this stuff develops and it grows into a root of bitterness. Anybody ever had a root of... I'm going to raise both hands. Anybody ever have a root of bitterness in their life? Because, yeah, sorry, I wouldn't like trying to point you out, but <laughs> thanks for raising both hands. That was great. Uh, but what happens, in, in most of the time, that's because nobody came along and picked something when it was really small, right? So pick small, right? Keep things from spreading, because roots will continue to grow until you deal with it, Right? The stuff doesn't go away. If there's a story from the Bible, it is ignoring sin does not make sin go away. We deal with it. All right. A couple other verses here. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. I think I've already read those. That was the uh, the text about uh, the guy and his uh, his stepmom, maybe. We're hoping it's not his mom. Because, I mean, they're just like, no. yeah. it's just like... It's just like revoltingly awful bad stuff. Um, so, but this idea of keeping sin from spreading to others, we deal with things, right? 1 Timothy 5, who's got 1 Timothy 5? We're going to read 17 through 20 here. Right here. You got it? Yeah. So we'll start at Yes, sir, 17. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> let the Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, yes. especially those that labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not multiply while it treads out the grain. And the laborers worthy of its wages do not believe, do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses who are, those who are sinning, rebuke and the. Presence. Oh, good. Good, 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 good. Great. Great job. Your translation got the verb tense right. Because okay. a lot of your translations say anyone who sins, and that's really not the right uh, it's, it's a, a present active uh, participle that says you, you are continuing, you are making a habit or a lifestyle of this. So can you read that, that part again? Those who are sinning, yeah. rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. Absolutely. So there's, there's nobody immune from this. So if you have a leadership position or if you don't, nobody's immune to church discipline. Everybody is covered in this space. Um, Another reason to practice church discipline is to protect the purity and the unity, the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. I mean, it is, if we let stuff grow in an unhealthy way, what's going to happen? We're not going to be pure, right? We're going to look like uh, really, really bad stuff. Now, I have used this picture to describe the purity of the church, but I can also tell you this applies to church discipline and how it has been applied in the church. There have been very good, healthy ways that church discipline has been applied. And there have been poisonous, toxic ways that church discipline has been applied that resulted in years and decades of pain and anger and frustration. So we have the option to pick, do we do this biblically or do we do this in the flesh in a poisonous way? So I just, I want us to be aware that we get to engage in the way that we choose to engage. Now, the question then becomes, for what sins should the church discipline be exercised? This is point number two there. I think it's maybe on the back of your handout. That's the start of the back. So, so what do we do this for, right? Well, there's a whole bunch of different sins that are listed. So Romans 16, 17, and Titus 3:10 talk about divisiveness. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5:1 is incest. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10 is laziness and refusing to work. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15 is disobeying the things that Paul writes. Um, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20 is blasphemy. And then 2 John verses 10 and 11 is teaching heresy. So very, very broad set of things that the New Testament says this is what we would exercise with. But all of those, and here's your blanks, were publicly known or outwardly evident sins. This is not a, um, this is something that is going to cause shame to come to the name of Jesus Christ in front of the whole world. This is public, this is outwardly evident. Um, And then Paul gives what I think is a beautiful explanation in Romans 14 of where there is difference of opinion on what is right and what is not, where things are very, very open-handed, here's your next blank. Paul encourages a wide degree of tolerance um, that we should be very cautious how we engage where things are very open-handed. Because if God has not said this is definitively, definitively wrong, let's be real careful how we approach in that space. All right, so then, how should church discipline be carried out? Real quick, we'll run through these. Um... Point A, knowledge of the sins should be kept to the smallest group possible. You know, one on one. Two or three to one. Small group to one. Church to one. It is, we, you, we're looking for point B here. Disciplinary measures should increase in strength until there is a solution. Not until you don't want to go anymore. We, I don't. I don't get to change what the text says here. It's we are commanded to keep going until there is a solution, and the solution sometimes is you have been removed from the fellowship of the church, and and, and I hate that. That is painful, but it it is what it is. Um, Matthew five twenty three and twenty four. Slip over there real quick. says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, not you have something against your brother, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So whose responsibility is it? Mine. It's mine. If I know something is not right, I have responsibility. Every time, every scenario. And I love, 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 love being able to go. That's not my job. That's somebody else's job. they got to go do that. I don't get an out in this. In relationships inside the church, I don't get an out. And then look at, uh, let's go back to Matthew 18. Flip back over there for just a second. Uh, I think Matthew 18:20 is one of the most misapplied verses in all the Bible. Uh, because this is dead set in the middle of church discipline conversation. And he says... Uh, Look at verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my my name, I am there in the midst of them. This this verse is not given to say uh, when we show up together to worship Jesus Christ on Sunday morning, God is here. God is always with the believer. This verse is saying that when believers go and exercise church discipline, that... God is giving them confidence that He is with them in this exercise of reconciliation and restoration. This is meant to be a strength. This is meant to be a. What's that? No, I just have oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. Um, I've had the unfortunate uh, and unfortunate situation in the church as a director of the additions Ministry and in the process of executing discipline, I can assure you that this church is very concerned about that. And the essence of the scripture that Jim just read, I will tell you that they are very supportive, but they want to make sure that every step that is written in the scripture is done right. We're starting from the very lowest level, all the way to the top. Yeah, and it. So, I, I hear questions sometimes when I talk about church discipline with our, um, with our people, and they say things like, "Well, I've never seen this happen." Good. <laughs> like the, I don't know what the math term is, but the vast majority of all this should happen one on one or one on two. Or one on, I mean, this is. Take care of it at the low level, the smallest group possible. That is what healthy looks like. Healthy does not look like go and tell 47 people and everybody, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa that's, not, that's not healthy. Healthy is small, small, small. And then it grows until a decision, a solution is reached. So uh, disciplinary measures should increase in strength until there is a solution. Uh, C, the discipline of church leaders. So we read about this just a little bit ago that church leaders are in this space as well. Um, and then how do we restore? Because the goal is restoration. And I can't tell you how many articles or, or uh, ideas that I have read online or in books that, about church discipline that never talk about the restoration <coughs> process they just like, here's how you deal with things. Well, great. Well, how do you restore? Well, 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 11 is quickly. So when you see repentance, when we see repentance, we engage, we celebrate, we restore. This is good. When we see, uh, when we go through this process, every one of us, 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 needs to understand that we all can be in this process. So we act, according to Galatians 6, 1, very gently. Because there might come a time and probably will come a time when somebody needs to talk to each one of us individually about some issue in our lives that is becoming a problem for the body. And then, if you look, I hope you still have your Bibles open to Matthew 18. What is the parable after the church discipline? Unforgiving servant. Yeah, the unforgiving servant. How many times do I forgive? Seventy times seven. So I don't think it's an accident where this is, right? So we talk about church discipline. We talk about restoration. We talk about building relationships. And then one of the apostles says, yeah, but how often are we supposed to do this? Yes. (laughs) Yes. We keep restoring and we keep restoring because we have been restored over over and over and over and over and over and over again. So... The most sprawling, non-structured Sunday school lesson I have taught in hopefully a long time. And this is the miscellaneous category chapter in this whole section. So that's uh, the power of the church. There are some phenomenally good questions in those questions for personal application this week. I know we went a little bit over. uh, But I would encourage you to read through those. They are fantastic. Uh, And then on your table is the weekly update. So lean in, engage, and pray. And when you're done praying, uh, head out and let's go worship together. So thanks for being at Sunday School today, guys.